This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, with me in the studio this week in, I believe, my first ever Brooklyn recorded episode of the show uh, is Josh Gondelman, a a comedian who has written for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and who now writes for Jesus and Marrow. His debut essay collection, Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results, is available now. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It's so exciting to finally be in the place where the rest of Slate is. What a pleasure. And I think this is my second recording of Dear Prudence here in this office. So you've been here more than I kind have. Of a, yeah, kind of an old hand. Good. Well, <laughs> I hope that you can show me the ropes. Yep. And um, I would love to start with, I'm really excited about our first letter. Yes, it's, it's very good. It's fantastic. Would you read it for us? Of course. Subject. Should we allow people to speak kindly of my father-in-law at his funeral? Dear Prudence, my father-in-law is a real piece of work. He is both ungrateful for the enormous blessings he has received and very unkind. He has been quite frank and outspoken about it. He has no love for anyone but himself, and that includes his wife and children. His actions over his whole life attest to that. He rarely speaks other than to complain about something or put someone down. His favorite pastime is writing complaint letters. He has spent virtually all of the past 20 years writing letters trying to get perfect strangers fired for perceived slights at various places he has visited. It gets much worse than that, but hopefully you get the picture. Honestly, you would have to dig to the Earth's core to uncover anything good to say about him. My wife is responsible for his funeral arrangements. She doesn't want anyone going up and saying all kinds of things about him that are clearly false, so she would rather have no one speak at all. What do you think? I certainly have thoughts. Same. Um... One option that I would like you and your wife to consider uh, is not being responsible for his funeral. Oh, what a call. I think sometimes there's this sense of like, obviously, that's not an option. No matter how much of an asshole he was, it would be either disrespectful of the dead, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. or more likely my other asshole relatives would get really mad at me if I don't put on a big fancy funeral. Sure. And I would just like to invite you to consider the option of saying... I'm not going to organize this funeral and letting those like asshole great aunts or whatever be mean to you for a little while about it and just say like, he sucked. I don't give a shit. Throw him in a ditch or or, like, I'll make sure he gets buried and that's it. And, and even if you do, I think even if you, even if you're, the relatives are kind, right? The other relatives, if you feel like, oh, if your wife feels this is something I want to take on, this is something that will be gratifying to take off my family's plate, something that that I'm that will give me closure, you definitely don't have to let people speak and say nice things about this horrible man. Absolutely. And if you want to have just like a very brief eulogy, yeah. either from like somebody from the funeral home or like one of those like uh, religious people that you can hire depending on your religious background to like say a few words and you can tell them like this was a difficult person. I would like your marks to be more general about the nature of like life and death mm-hmm. and then, you know, keep it to a tight five. Yeah, I um. I don't think when someone dies, you have to be extra nice to them because it won't benefit them. (laughs) They're dead and it won't benefit you. So like there's no I don't see any reason to go out of your way. It seems like your family is on board, too. Right. Or or your wife's family, uh, your in-laws, because it doesn't seem like they have like any undue expectation of like they're going to weep and rend their garments and and, uh, emotion will flow through them. I, I think. It it there's no reason to go through this like charade of a proper funeral, right? Uh, just because like that's how all the funerals you've been to have gone, right? And a- again, like I don't mean to say this flippantly or mm-hmm. or to throw all tradition out the window, but you know I see a sentence like you would have to dig to the earth's core to find something good about him. Mm-hmm. I just wonder like. Give yourself the gift of considering not having a fucking funeral for this asshole yeah, then or or totally. for not taking it on. Again, I realize it's your wife and not you and you mm-hmm. can't like demand she not do it. And like these kinds of guilt trips can run deep or sense of obligation can run deep. But like 
it is possible to just say, like, we're actually not going to do a service or to say if yeah. somebody else freaks out about it, like, great, you are welcome to organize something. Yep. Um, consider it as an option. And again, if you uh, if your wife is running things and she says we're not going to have anybody stand up and somebody else is a jerk about it, you know, you can allow them to be upset and just yeah. not worry about it. Yep, definitely. Uh, it's it's this is there you have you have this leeway. You've been given permission by us to people who have never met you to uh, to to go off book yes. with this funeral. Yeah, and again, really hope you at least consider just not having yeah. a service. It would be a gift to, to everyone. Yeah. Who wants it? I want to I want to make this like a new trend. You know how like people often will say like we want to elope to like mm-hmm. save like we need an elopement for funerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's like eight minutes, ten people show up, you go home, afterwards you send out note cards. Yep. I, I think the funeral is mostly for it's for the family. And if the family is like, oh, I don't want this, this is a hassle. Like yeah. what who who are you putting on a show for? Right, exactly. So anyways, good luck. At least he's gone. <laughs> yeah, there's no need for a shotgun funeral. <laughs> a shotgun funeral. All right. So in keeping with like the questions of larger obligations to the family, the subject of this next letter is pushy parents. Dear Prudence, I'm engaged to be married this summer and my parents recently came to visit me and my partner. They live out of state and we have a tense relationship. They're not very happy that I'm a lesbian and they're even less happy that my partner is a trans woman. About six months ago, my aunt offered to talk to my parents on my behalf. I agreed thinking it couldn't hurt. Well, I got a text message from her after they talked saying that my parents seemed, quote, fine with my being a lesbian, but that she herself, quote, didn't realize my partner was trans and she now understood why they were concerned. I sent a message back where I pointed out it was hypocritical of her to condemn homophobia but not trans misogyny. I didn't use those exact words since they aren't really in her vocabulary. I've received no response and we haven't communicated since. We sent out Save the Dates last month, and I decided not to invite my aunt or uncle to the wedding. When my parents came to visit, my mom informed me in front of my partner that I needed to invite them to the wedding. Prudence, my mother is emotionally abusive to me. I don't want a big blowout fight with her, but she's also not paying for the wedding and is already being bossy about who I should invite. I also don't want to tell her why I'm on the outs with my aunt. What should I do? So I feel like my thing today, especially with these first two letters, is is just... Fuck them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to acknowledge, like, that is where I am coming from, sure. which is just like, your mom's not paying for the wedding. She's already emotionally abusive to you. Don't invite her. Literally disinvite her. Mm-hmm. Hang up if she starts to scream. Leave the room if she starts to yell. If she is not paying for the wedding and she is being an asshole to you regardless, you know, a- at least you could have the peacefulness of a wedding without her. That sounds really nice. And with y- your aunt... Continue to not invite your aunt to this wedding. Yeah, she doesn't want to come. Yep. She doesn't like your relationship with your soon-to-be wife. Yeah, and this is a... I, I'm... The specific relationship dynamics are not something that I feel like I can speak to from a great first-person well of experience. But I do think the uh, the idea of not wanting someone you are in conflict with at your wedding is something that is so reasonable. And if there is not the financial um, kind of... Burden, obligation. Yeah, or uh, there's not like a financial um, extortion (laughs) being held over your head, right? There's no leverage there that your mom has. Then like, why do it? Is Is the fight of, no, she can't come worse than the fight or the the feeling that you'll have at your own wedding of this person being there. Right. And this isn't like uh, we had a disagreement about how I addressed the invitations. This is about the nature of your marriage. Mm -hmm. This is the person you're marrying. Like, this is a very reasonable line to draw. And and you intimated that in in the letter that this was, you know, this was being done, these kind of arguments are being held in front of your partner, which to me implied that it is that's an uncomfortable situation for her as well. And I think that that's um, being mindful of that and not just you and your uh, your mother, or you and your aunt, but how your your fiance feels about this. Right. And and so I understand it sounds like because you haven't told your mom that you and your aunt had a fight about her trans misogyny, you don't want to bring that up with her, which, again, you do not have to. But I it, it, 
I think you're kind of hoping that there's a version of this where you can placate your mom enough that she leaves you alone and you can avoid your aunt. And I think while that may be possible, I want you to be prepared for having to have it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I understand that like dealing with an emotionally abusive parent can be really scary and painful. And, and I totally don't want to just um, suggest like, just tell your mom to fuck off and that'll feel easy and fun. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think you should be prepared to say, I'm not inviting my aunt. I have excellent reasons why I'm not going to go into them. This is not up for debate. And if she keeps trying to push it, say, you know, I got to hang up now, mom. We're not talking about this. And if she continues to not be able to let it go, then you do have to do the like, mom, if you can't let this go, you can't come to the wedding. And I say that as somebody who I was very, very close with my family and then very unexpectedly uh, became estranged from all of them a couple of weeks before my own wedding um, and had to make a lot of really intense last minute changes to the wedding, including like letting the facility know like here are some people that may try to show up and can't oh my gosh we can't let them in um and that was not easy it was not fun i was very upset um so i i I don't say this lightly it was really hard it was also completely necessary and it was possible um so for whatever that is worth you can if you need to decide that your mom and your aunt aren't coming to your wedding and you can make that happen even if they try to crash it. You can set those boundaries. You can let the venue know. You can let other people who need to act as bouncers know. You can hire a small security detail. You can do whatever you have to to make sure that even if your mom and your aunt don't respect your relationship and your boundaries, um, you get to decide what kind of a world you live in. And I'm really sorry. Because that's that's also like literally that line about like, I thought it couldn't hurt. Yeah. And then it ended up being worse. Yep. It, and that's so, that sounds so harrowing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I'd said, like, again, I don't mean to say this flippantly of like, you just, you don't have to have your aunt at your wedding. Like, that doesn't sound like a um, a joyful option, right? Yeah. It doesn't sound like it's, it's going to, but it does sound like it will bring you kind of peace and real and contentment in the long run to, yeah. to not introduce this kind of um destabilizing unpleasant element into uh, a ceremony that you want to be really lovely and memorable for you right I, I i totally agree there are so many ways in which marriage and family and wedding days involve sometimes difficult compromise mm-hmm. with people who are challenging um, or people that we behave challengingly towards mm-hmm. and then there are also some really obvious bright lines yeah of like what public safety looks like or what respect for other mm-hmm. people looks like. And and I think it's really good and necessary to say, if you can't live up to this on this day, you can't be there. So like not having my family of origin there was both really devastating mm-hmm. and the easiest decision I ever had to make. When um, my the one person that I was least inclined to invite to my wedding that my parents wanted on the list was an, an older cousin who I just don't have a relationship with. And I thought, why would we take on this, you know, financial and, and spatial obligation right. when we there are other people who wanted? And fortunately <laughs> for me, he wrote back to my parents and said, uh, well, I'm not going to come unless you buy my plane tickets. Oh, my. <laughs> and we said, well, that this you really uh, dunked this on your own basket because nope. The gift of clarity is so nice sometimes. It was really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and and I don't wish him ill, but I'm really glad that he said that. He, he let everyone know what his terms yeah. were, you know? He made it simple. He said clear boundaries. He did. Good for him. Yeah. He's great. Good for my weird old cousin. I think I may be going too far with this one. <laughs> Uh, would you please read our next yes. letter? Um, subject, partner peeing the bed. Dear Prudence, I have been dating my 32-year-old boyfriend for almost three years. I love him and he adores me. We've talked about marriage for a while. However, for the past two years, he has peed our bed or our couches, wherever he falls asleep, every few weeks. At first it started when he had a night of drinking, but also has happened after not drinking alcohol at all. To clarify, my boyfriend is not a drinker. He only drinks when out with his friends or at a party, etc. At first, I was very patient and supportive and in no way shamed him, but it has not stopped. A couple of months ago, he peed in our Airbnb that I paid for and and left me to deal with it because he was really ill. I confronted him and told him that enough was enough and that I could not take being peed on in my sleep any longer. He promised to change and finally see a doctor. 
My boyfriend did see a doctor once, but never returned because he had a terrible experience with a lab tech. Since then, he has continued to drink when out and has peed the bed slash couch multiple times. I understand there is a lot of shame connected to this, but my asking gently for him to take care of it clearly hasn't worked. I don't want to feel like a parent to my adult partner. I don't know what to do. This is making me question my future with him. Help. So I want to start by acknowledging that it's very real that like having a traumatizing or dismissive or painful or embarrassing interaction with a nurse or a doctor or a lab technician is like real and painful. So I, I don't want to make light of that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just I, I really want to acknowledge like I imagine that was really, really difficult for him. Mm-hmm. And I hope that um, whatever the next appointment he is able to schedule, it is at a different location or he's able to make it clear I will not work with that person again. Maybe if he needs to file a report and needs support in doing that, that you could encourage him to take that step. That said, I don't know that I agree that your boyfriend doesn't have a drinking problem. Not not only that, but you you the writer portrayed him as not a drinker, right? right. Didn't say doesn't have a drinking problem. Said not a drinker, which this sounds he's definitely at he's the very drinker. least a drinker, right? Right, and and I don't want to again. I don't want to dismiss like it's oftentimes possible that someone can both have like a mild to moderate drinking problem mm-hmm. and a separate unrelated health condition. Sure. So again, like I, I don't want to be dismissive of that. So. Um, but but like I my worry here is the very real possibility that he loses bladder control when he's drinking. He drinks to that point fairly regularly, and you two are for some reason pretending that that's not what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- the possibility that this is just denial about his drinking, I would say, is pretty substantial. Um, and I would say if he did not tell the doctor the last time he had an, the appointment how much he drinks any kind of a sense of what his drinking looks like on a daily or weekly basis if it's really inconsistent like a lot of binge drinkers and how often the like uncontrolled urination is connected to I had something to drink that day he needs to the next time he goes. It sounds like there's a firm possibility that these two are related and and I also want to provide validation that uh, you wanting to not be regularly urinated on while you sleep yep. is a very valid position. Incredibly valid. I think, uh, you know, people are entitled to be not urinated on exactly as how often as they feel. Yeah. And, and, and like you can do that without demeaning him. You can mm-hmm. do that without like perpetuating any kind of like medical shame. Mm-hmm. That's not what you're doing here. So in the short term, if what you need to do is say like until we get this handled, I need to sleep in a different place than mm-hmm. you do that. Um, absolutely. If it's making you question your future with him, the fact that he's not addressing this again, even taking into consideration the fact that yes. that like pain that he experienced with that technician was real. Um, he still does need to make an appointment somewhere and and again whatever if, if he needs support in making a new appointment if he needs support in contacting the original tech place and saying like the lab technician said xyz to me and i hope you retrain or discipline or whatever mm-hmm. this person yeah do that but i just I, like that that bit about it's also happened after not drinking alcohol at all but then you say he continues to drink one out and pees the bed slash couch multiple times and i just my read here is that he's not being honest with you about his drinking and the fantasy that sometimes it happens when he's not drinking is wishful thinking. Or or at least the drinking exacerbates the frequency of whatever bladder problem exists. Right. It is really commendable to want to provide support for a partner who's having um, legitimate medical problems, whether it is a bladder problem or a, a problem with drinking or both. Right, they're both legitimate. Yes, but... I think you're that the goals you're trying to set of not being peed on while you're asleep are very valid and it is understandable why you would not like that. Yes. And just because it's a legitimate medical condition yes. doesn't mean you're not allowed to say like, well, as a result of your behavior, I'm going to make the following choices. Right, right, right. So like saying I'm not going to sleep in the same bed with you anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a reasonable thing to say. Saying I'm not going to clean up after this mm-hmm. or I'm not going to schedule Airbnb or hotel rooms together until you've gotten a handle on this. Mm-hmm. That's reasonable. Saying the longer you put off treating this, even taking into account the tough experience that you had, the more I feel like I can't count on you to seriously and appropriately tackle problems in our relationship. And I want to take a step back. 
all of those are things you can and should do. Mm-hmm. And just really seriously ask yourself, how often does he go out? You know, because mm-hmm. it sounds like it's a couple times a week. And it sounds like I, I don't know that line about like he was really ill. I don't know if that was like he was hung over and you both called it a headache. Right. I don't know if there's a separate medical condition. Like either way, I'm not saying like if it's just that he's a drinker, he's merely an asshole and you need to kick him to the curb or else he's like purely a victim and you need to do like everything to help him. I'm saying whatever's going on. There are times when he is not drunk. There are times when he is not actively peeing the bed. And there are times when he is not ill. He needs to do something. Agreed. Yeah. Get get in a different bed. Okay. I want to finish this one because I'm so excited about the next one. Oh, yeah. This is fascinating. This is a lot. And yeah. you get to read it, which I'm very excited about. So, Subject. Contested cat drawings. Dear Prudence, I am an artist. A few years ago, I did some pen and ink drawings of the family cats. Coco was my sister's, and this fall, Coco died because my sister's boyfriend deliberately let Coco go outside. He thought Coco was like his dog and would stick around in the yard until he remembered to let him inside. Coco was a house cat and ended up getting run over. My sister was devastated, in quotes, but is still dating her boyfriend. They saw that I had framed a few drawings of the cats as an early gift to my parents. My sister wanted to know if I had any of just Coco, and I had one. She demanded it, and I told her no, since it was one of my best works. Her boyfriend pulled my portfolio out of my hands and told me not to be such a bitch. My sister ignored this. I grabbed it back and told my sister she definitionally wasn't going to get one now. I didn't see why she was so upset since she didn't really love Coco. My sister got upset, and I continued that this guy got Coco killed, but she was still sleeping with him. My sister turned on the waterworks and got our parents involved. She lied and accused me of saying she killed Coco. All the while, her boyfriend plays the tough defender and gets in between my sister and me. I ended up leaving and spending Christmas with a friend instead. My parents blame me for everything since my sister has always been sensitive. I even got her to admit her boyfriend called me a bitch in a text, but that doesn't matter. I'm tired. This is toxic, right? I feel like a frog in a boiling pot. My sister has always been manipulative and would cry to get her way. This isn't normal after age four. But she never let a boyfriend kill a pet or curse me out before. My parents never pushed me away for Christmas. I feel alone. So, yeah, the first line, I am an artist. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I get that vibe here. Yes. This is not a family of, like, de-escalators. No. Everyone's just going for full intensity all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Even in this this email, you are you're not pulling punches. No. And like every couple of sentences I would think like, okay, I think I know who's like quote unquote side I'm on at this yes. point. And then they would do something like, damn it, now I can't yeah. uh, I can't be on your side anymore. This is a real knives out situation. It is exactly shifting allegiances, um, shifting again, not not to lay blame, but shifting uh, responsibilities for for this situation. I want to, like, clarify that the stakes here are a pen and ink drawing of a cat, Mm -hmm. which is not to say that you don't have a right to assert certain boundaries or Mm -hmm. that you don't have a right to feel your own feelings about this guy or that people couldn't have behaved badly. But, like, this is not an actual cat you're all fighting over. It's a drawing of a cat. Yes. And, And it sounds like there's a lot tangled up in this drawing that it might help to think of as separate issues. I also just love the confidence of this isn't normal after age four. Yeah. Like. People cry. People cry to get the. I mean, like, and I don't. Maybe your sister's a really manipulative person. I think there's lots and lots of blame that can go to all three of you right now in this story. But, like, I want to leave at least the possibility open that, like, sometimes people just cry when they're upset. Yes. And that doesn't mean that the person who is crying is Right. Right. But it does. It that just is means a they're crying. Reaction. Yes. Yeah. It just means they're crying. That's yeah. all. You can disagree with someone while they're crying. Yes. I think that the sticking point to me in this message that that it feels like everything is kind of wrapped around is your insistence that your sister didn't love Coco and that and your judgments flowing from there. Right. It went from. He let the boyfriend let Coco go outside because he thought Coco was like a dog and would just hang out Mm -hmm. all the way up to the end. She never let a boyfriend kill a pet. Yes. As if it was like a Manson family situation. Mm -hmm. And she was like, please take this knife, murder my cat in front of me. Rather than she forgave her boyfriend for 
an error of judgment. Decision. Yeah, which again, I can understand um, that if you were in that situation, you might not. Um, mm-hmm. I can also understand disagreeing with her, but like mm-hmm. she did not let him kill her cat. And she was sad about the cat. You got to give her that much. And, right. And the, the fact that she is still uh, with her boyfriend, I don't think means she never loved the cat. Yeah. I mean, this this is something that falls under the realm of like, again, I don't want to say either like she was right or wrong to stay with him. But like mm-hmm. cats, some some people who love their cats, let them go outside. Yes. The trade off is that cats love being outside and it often shortens their lives. I think I I truly believe that there are people who love cats who would never let their cats outside and that there are people who love cats and would. I don't I don't put this in the same category as like a universally black or white issue. It's yes. a hard call to make. Yes. Again, he may have been totally irresponsible in that moment. He may have been completely at fault. He he also just didn't kill the cat on purpose. Yes. I think that needs to be clear. You don't you don't need to overstate your case here. Right. Because there's plenty of stuff to just be mad about. He shouldn't have called you a bitch. Yes. That that's, wasn't like let's, that's so out of bounds. Yeah. That behavior is so much worse and more egregious and intentional to me than um than than the the incident with Coco. Yeah. So, you know, like I I think we can kind of like you, you go back to you were framing picture uh, some of the pictures to give to your parents. Your sister wanted to know if you had any of just Coco, and I had one. Um, it it was totally okay of you to say like, no, I I I'm saving this for my own use. Mm-hmm. Um, I can also understand why she had wanted. Like she clearly loved the cat, but like yeah. it's also really okay for you to say no. And it was incredibly incredibly out of line for him to yank this out of your hands and call you a bitch. So like you have every right to say like I don't feel safe around this guy. Mm-hmm. Um he owes me an apology. Yes. If he's not prepared to give me one, I can't be around him. Um that's a super super reasonable boundary to draw. But those to me are all issues that are that happened sequentially with the the Coco stuff and the painting stuff, but are not, it is not the same to me. I don't think any of this means that your sister didn't love her cat or wasn't sad at this interaction. I think right. like knowing that the way you were treated by them when, when he cursed at you and she d- was, you know, didn't come to your defense or didn't help you procure an apology, that, that seems like real. Uh, mistreatment and, and real real callousness. But I think that is, I think to conflate that with, so they don't deserve a picture of a cat that I drew because it was my best one. These these feel separate. And I think you can uh, uh, discuss these grievances and conflicts without having everything feel like a big snowball of, um, uh, of distrust and anger. Yeah. And again, I I understand why in that moment and now you have overstated it to the point of she never loved that cat. Yes. In part because like you were being pushed around physically by this guy mm-hmm. and the two of them were leaning on you really heavily to try to get you to do something you didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the pressure was real and then they brought in your parents and you felt outnumbered and you felt pressured and I get it. And, and that's really painful. But again, uh, the thing to do in that moment is to say like, I'm going to walk away from the situation right now. I'm not going to give you the picture. We can talk about this later when you have settled down. I'm not going to hang out with this guy again. Yeah. Not, I need to lash out because I feel outnumbered. Yes. You never loved your cat. Mm-hmm. So, but that said, I, I I just want to acknowledge right now, it's everyone on one side against you. Mm-hmm. Take your time. Take your space. Let your parents know, like, we're adults. This is between me and Cora. Um, sorry, Coco's the name of the cat. You don't name your sister here. I named her Cora in my mind. That was a really good specific name. We're calling her Cora. She's Cora. Cora's your sister. Um, you have every right to say to your parents, like, even if you think we're mishandling this, this is between me and Cora. We mm-hmm. are not little kids anymore. We're going to resolve this or not between the two of us. And it also sounds like a frustration that it feels to you like you're being cited against because your sister is sensitive, yeah. which it it also sounds like you're it's not being acknowledged that you also have sensitivities yeah. and needs, right? Like wanting your wanting your art that you worked really hard on is like a sensitivity and that's okay. Yeah. And just because you don't didn't cry doesn't mean that it's any less hurtful, right? Or that you want it or mean it any less or deserve it any less. Right. And and of course, like um 
emotions often run high around the holidays. Mm -hmm. I understand why it felt painful that you went and spent Christmas with friends, even though I think that was the right decision. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I also just I really get like why you're hurt and where this is coming from. So I think my best advice is just, again, give this a little time. Think about the things that you feel that you can take responsibility for even though it can feel really hard to apologize at all when you feel ganged up on because there's a sense of like, if I give them anything, they will take a mile. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the problem that you've been led into previously is you let their bad behavior justify your own bad behavior. And you need to just say like, at least I can control my own conduct. Yes. And I can say, I should not have said you didn't love your cat. Um, and I, I should not have said that you never loved your cat. Wait, mm -hmm. did I just repeat myself? Those are related. Killed the things. cat and didn't love the cat. Yeah. Right. Right. Shouldn't have said shouldn't have said that he murdered the cat, right. essentially, and shouldn't have insisted that Cora uh never loved the cat to begin with, or right. certainly didn't doesn't now. Right. Yes. And then like that said, I don't think you have the right to demand that I hand over the art. Um, it was not okay for him to grab it out of my hands. And when you and I have conflict, I don't want you to try to drag our parents into it yes. because we're adults. And it's certainly not okay for your sister's boyfriend to tell you you're being a bitch because right. you're, you know, setting these yeah. boundaries for yourself. Yeah. And and if and if they have nothing to that, if they're just like, nope, digging their heels in, mm -hmm. I, I, I would totally understand you're just saying like, okay, this conversation's not going anywhere productive. Let's end it. Mm -hmm. That is something you have every right to say. Um, you don't need to overcorrect by saying other really outrageous stuff. And good luck. I think you're going to need some time collectively. I think yes. it's going to be a while before any of you are able to have anything remotely approaching a calm conversation with each other about your actual resentments or grievances. It's probably not going to be able to involve this guy who absolutely does. Like, I, I, I wanted to be on his side at first because I was like, that could have been an accident. No, he's a fucking asshole. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm I'm very much on your side in that. Like, he and, is an asshole. And when someone is an asshole, it is harder to, even when they have mistakes that could otherwise be forgivable, like, that counts, right? The other, the other asshole behavior counts. And, like, you, it is okay to like them less and v view their mistakes with less charity. Right. Because they're otherwise an asshole. And, again, like, in, in terms of everything else, like, he he's the one who grabbed something out of your hands and called you a yes. bitch. Like, that, to me, stands apart from all the other stuff. As hurtful as a lot of the other stuff yes. was, that was, like, a real escalation into the beginnings of, like, a, a physical conflict. Yes. So, really, really okay for you to say, like, I'm not comfortable being around him. He needs to either apologize and commit to never behaving that way again or, like, I don't choose to be near him. Mm -hmm. That's super, super okay for you to do. Okay, we have. Uh, I, 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 I'm worried about this next one. It's it's tender. It's tender, and you've been married for 20 years, and yeah. it doesn't sound like you two have talked about this yet. Yeah, and this is. We'll get into it after. Yeah, yeah, we will. We will. So the subject is: How do I help my husband tell better anecdotes? Dear Prudence, I've been married to a wonderful man for over 20 years, but he has a flaw that I don't know how to address. He's a terribly long-winded storyteller. When he's recounting any event, he includes far too many tangential details of a personal nature, not technical, and he'll repeat points in two or three different ways. The rambling is unfortunately bad enough that numerous people have mentioned it to me, saying things like, your husband's a great guy, but these stories... Wow, I'm trying to stay with him, but I wonder if he will ever get to the end. I've recently realized that it's likely affecting his career. He interviewed for a job recently, and the headhunter told him ahead of time, try not to talk too much. The feedback we got from your last interview was that you talk too much. I knew exactly what that had to mean. Asked to, quote, tell us about a time you solved a problem or handled a personnel issue, the interview would end up being filled with his trademark rambling. Perhaps most frustrating is knowing how poorly that represents his actual focus, success, and general excellence at his job. Is there any way to address this problem productively? Can he learn to be more succinct? And if so, how can I gently bring up the need for it, doing as little damage to his self-confidence as possible? This is tricky. Yeah. It sounds like a problem that the writer has with their husband. I, I One thing I noticed mm -hmm. was she mentions we have a lot of friends who don't like it. Yes. And I know it's affecting his job. And there's a couple of hints about how, like, it's unfortunately bad enough, like, offering a kind yeah. of objective assessment. Yeah. But you never come out and say, it bothers me. Mm -hmm. 
And I hope you know, letter writer, it's not disloyal to your husband. Yes. And it doesn't make you a bad partner to say, this habit sometimes affects me. I get that you love him. Yes. I get that he's a good guy. I don't think this is one of those letters where it's like, my husband's a good guy, but he's actually an evil monster right. who kicks puppies. Or, or my husband is a good guy, but I just have no love for him in my heart right. any longer. Right. Like, it's okay that this frustrates you. Yes. Um, and and that, that's what it read like to me. Yeah. It sounded like building a case that like, it is it is real and it is that's why I'm frustrated with it. not like that this isn't some little quirk that grates on my nerves. Right. But it does sound like that is part of it. Right. And of course, it's always going to be difficult when you think about we've been married for 20 years mm-hmm. and we've never talked about it. And he totally lacks self-awareness about yes. it. So any conversation we're going to have about it is going to be jarring. Yes. Again, I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. I really, really do. I think you will be able to bring this up in a way that Prepare yourself for him to be surprised and prepare yourself for him to be kind of like upset Um, because he's going to look back over the last 20 years and think, oh, my God, what I thought was somebody excited to hear me was somebody trying to get through a a boring story. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I think maybe bringing it up as it is happening could be something where you say, hey, I'm excited to hear the resolution of this story, but like you've told me that detail. Yeah. Um, you know, I think like that kind of, you don't have to sit silently. Like it's okay to interrupt a boring story to go, oh yeah, we, we've been over that. Um, that, that kind of gentle guidance can maybe be helpful in conditioning. I think that's a really good follow-up strategy Mm -hmm. to a conversation. And again, it doesn't have to be like, I've been living a lie for 20 years. Like it's, it's, it's possible to have an appropriate sense of proportion. Yes. Um, but I think. You have kind of the gift of like the headhunter has already brought this up. Yep. So I think you can say, I was really struck by something that your headhunter told yeah. you. And I have noticed this myself and I want to talk to you about it, which is that when you tell stories, I never know when you're going to get to the end. And maybe you don't want to say something like, I never know. Like you can say this lovingly, but yeah. you can say you have a tendency to repeat yourself and you have a tendency to ramble. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed it. And I know now that your headhunter has noticed it. Does this sound at all true? Like when you when you think about this, do you kind of know what I'm talking about? Do you want me to give you examples? I think that you can tweak this without tons and tons of extra energy, but I also don't want to come down too hard on you. Yeah. And especially if it is because for you to have heard from the headhunter means he has shared it with you. Yeah. So it's it's an open conversation, at least to that extent, right? That you you didn't snoop in his emails and go, I knew it. He's rambling. Yeah. Um, so I think that's like a helpful a helpful position to be in to say like this this is something that like you said this is something I've noticed as well and and that um you have these fascinating points to make but sometimes it 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 gets a little unfocused in the telling. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and not that you're not interested in his life, yeah. or interested in his insights, but that j- the 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 method of getting this information across sometimes dilutes what you said. Again, you said you know he has this focus and thoughtfulness and and, and dynamism that right. like that he's just not conveying. One thing I do want to stress though is like I, I I absolutely believe that this is just like a flaw in an otherwise really great person. Mm-hmm. So I'm not suggesting that like. This changes everything you know about him. But I will say he is giving um, these interviewers an accurate sense of his self-awareness and his judgment when he tells long-winded stories. That doesn't cancel everything else out, but you say, like, it doesn't actually represent him. But I think it does. Like, he may be very focused and successful and generally super attentive to his job, Mm -hmm. but he's also not paying attention to the, like, quiet clues and cues people give you when they're bored. Mm-hmm. And that's imp- that's an important soft skill in any job. Yes, more important in some than others, right? Like if if he's just trying to get to get through this interpersonal part to do a job where he works independently as a, a you know maybe a, a machinist who works solitarily, then it 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 is maybe a stumbling block to a job that he would be incredibly qualified for. Right, but it is if he's a therapist. Yes, it is giving him it is giving a um an accurate portrayal of what it is like to converse with him. Right. And, you know, based on how that conversation goes, you can ask, like, do you want some feedback on this Mm -hmm. ongoing? Like, do you want us to have, like, a little check-in session for the next couple of weeks? Mm -hmm. Do you want me to kind of quietly have a signal for you to let you know that I think you're doing it? What sounds good to you? Because it may be that he's like, yes, I'm ready. Tell me everything. And it may be that he's like, I need a little time. I feel sensitive. Or I have no idea when I'm doing it. Yeah. 
Or maybe he would say, no, I've never heard this before. Yeah. And in in that case, at least you can say, knowing that the headhunter said this, well, maybe if it came up in this job interview, you can figure out what that meant professionally. Right. Even if not interpersonally at this moment, if you're not, you know, if you don't feel like this is something you're trying to hear right now. Yeah. But I think what you want to do is loving. Mm -hmm. You want him to not put people off. Mm -hmm. Um, He has lots of other great qualities. And you can kind of stress, like, I think this kind of gets in the way of your other great qualities. And if you can get a better handle on this, people are going to be able to see all these great things about you that are real. Yeah. So I do think, while I think he will probably feel a little hurt and embarrassed at first, no matter how kindly you put it, Mm -hmm. he will also hopefully appreciate it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like, I I would always want to know if I had something really gross on my face, even if I felt initially like really embarrassed, like, oh no, I had something on my face. Yeah. Yeah. We do have time. Great. For our last extra question. Phil, I don't know if you're still on the line back in Berkeley, um, but we are now tackling that question about Jewish identity. And you mentioned that you might enjoy being on it. Oh, yes. I'm very interested in this question. Phil, welcome. Thank you so, so much. Um, It's my producer, Phil, everybody. Um, And I'm going to let Josh read this one, which, again, you have not seen. So I apologize. This This is a last minute edition. Question. Do I owe it to anyone to embrace my Jewish identity? I was raised Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah when I was 13, but it was never a big part of me. I never felt like Judaism was part of my identity at all and haven't actively practiced in years. I don't even actually consider myself Jewish anymore, and I'm happy with that. I never needed the religion, and it never did anything for me, so I'm happy being completely and utterly without any sort of religious affiliation. But here we are in 2020. Violent anti-Semitism is on the rise, and I'm finding that my Jewish friends, even those who don't actively practice, are starting to publicly proclaim their Jewish identities more and more. The idea in most cases is that the way to combat the rise in anti-Semitic violence is to show those who would do violence to the Jewish community that nothing will deter them from practicing their faith and embracing their faith community. And to a point, I get it. But the problem is I'm starting to feel bad. I'm starting to feel like I owe it to my Jewish friends to essentially be more Jewish, even though it's no longer who I am. Also, I'm aware of the irony of a lapsed Jew feeling guilty for not embracing the Jewish community of which he doesn't feel a part anymore. Anyway, my question is this. Do I owe it to my Jewish friends or the Jewish community at large to essentially be more Jewish? By actively rejecting the Jewish community, even though I never felt a part of it, am I making it easier for anti-Semitic violence to flourish? Am I overthinking it? Should I be asking a rabbi or my therapist? So I want to let you two mostly tackle this one. Um, The only thing that I think is important for me to say before I pass it over is just um, the question of, am I making it easier for anti-Semitic violence to flourish? And I would just say, um, Jewish people are not responsible for Mm anti-Semitism. So that feels like a really quick and easy answer is like, no. Uh, regardless of what you choose to do or not do with your identity or your heritage or your background or whatever you choose to call it, um, anti-Semites are responsible for anti-Semitism, not Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Real easy answer there. I just want to say that I think this letter is the start of a journey for this person. I think they're asking good questions. Uh, I always say I'm culturally Jewish and I actually wasn't bar mitzvahed, so I'm a child in the eyes of any rabbi, but I just think when I was a kid, this was kind of uh, foisted upon me, like, uh, you should do this, you should get bar mitzvahed, and I kind of rejected it, and as an adult, it becomes more interesting, and I pick up little things, and I'm like, oh, wow, it's uh, there's a lot of things about Judaism that I find interesting, and but I still, I don't know that many Jewish people out here in the Bay Area. Um, I was just back in Brooklyn for my niece's bat mitzvah, and I found it very um, emotional and powerful. So, but I think this letter is very interesting because it it feels a lot like what I feel is like I want to explore more of what being Jewish means. There's a lot of things happening today that brings this issue front and center. Yeah, it does. I think that viewing this as the start of a journey rather than like a flip the switch decision of like how Jewish am I and now it's it's set in stone. Uh, you know, we've we've taken off the safeties and, and this is how I'll always feel is I think that's a really smart and, and thoughtful and very honestly very Jewish way to go about it, right? Is yes. to be like, well, I 
ish, <laughs> like really <laughs> emphasizing the ish in in Jewish. I also think there there is a feeling of guilt with which I am semitically familiar, and I've described myself as a Beastie Boys Jew. That's like, like that. the level of Judaism that and facially Jewish as well. <laughs> um, but I I think that. There's again, there's a couple things tied up in this question. And one is a sense of your own identity, which is that's for you to decide and for you for you to to always kind of be deciding it and and that journey that journey that Phil mentioned. But the other thing I think uh, uh, an implied question to me is, can you take a stand in defense of the violence against Jewish people credibly? And what is your responsibility to do that? And I think, Danny's, Danny nailed it in saying that Jews are not responsible. Jews are not responsible for violence against the Jewish people, but you don't have to feel Jewish to condemn any kind of uh, hatred, anti-Semitism, um, anti-Muslim violence. I think like you can be a citizen informed by your Jewish upbringing, but not. Um, dictated by it and i think there is a way to participate in uh, kind of upstanding activism and and uh, standing up f- for people who are being marginalized and attacked with without even having to define yourself uh super clearly and that can remain an ongoing project even if you uh, are being really staunch in your advocacy. I think these are all just really helpful things. Phil, did you have any other thoughts or other like questions you'd want to invite this letter writer to consider? I think Josh said uh, a lot of it. I think there are a lot of ways to be an ally. And so I don't feel like they should force it, you know, force something if they don't intrinsically feel it. But as Josh said, they are informed by their upbringing and I, I do think they should just kind of ask more questions. There's something that's compelling this person to to seek out an answer here. That that's right. There are other kinds of you know bigotry and, and uh, hate crime violence that are happening. And I think for for this to have struck a chord with you personally means there there are things that you're thinking of and and wrestling with, and and it's okay to like continue that that wrestling in an ongoing manner and it's scary and it's sad, but like something, something is like, is touching you personally about this, even though you don't feel actively Jewish. And, and I think that that speaks to like a, uh, an uncertainty of like how to get involved and how to show up for people that maybe you don't, don't feel the same kind of like, uh, technical affinity for but that is like a really worthwhile pursuit in, in in all places even if you don't you know even if you can't read hebrew or can and choose not to i think like showing up for people is like a really uh, important impulse and it's okay to like even if you don't feel qualified to do it or like a part of the group that is doing it it is okay to like figure out what allyship looks like to you and what people would want from you even as a, a person outside those groups. I think too, just one thing that I would add is uh, there may be times or ways in which you experience anti-Semitism without necessarily considering yourself a part of like the greater or a greater Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And um, like, if that is something that you experience, I hope you know, and that you feel entitled to solidarity, community support, I hope that that does not happen to you, but I, I do want to name that. And uh, I also think I, I don't want to suggest that like the way you're looking at this question has been totally Christianized, but it does strike me as a slightly Christian way of thinking about identity. And I know that various like, groups within Judaism have thought a lot really extensively about what does it mean to be Jewish and what does self-identification look like um, and that different groups have different um, criteria that's, that strike them as more important than others. So uh, there are lots and lots of atheist Jews. There are lots and lots of people who are Jewish in, in a meaningful sense but don't necessarily practice religious traditions. Mm-hmm. So again, that doesn't mean you have to go do that. I, I just hope you feel that that is an option that may be available to you if you choose it, which is not, I have to either become religiously observant or not. And again, 
this is a little outside of my wheelhouse, so I don't want to say like, you have my permission to go do the following things and call yourself this and that. I just mean, if you wanted to learn more about various traditions that involve not being religiously observant, you have company. Yeah. Yes, fully agreed. Whether it's enjoying the films of Mel Brooks or, you know, there there are great, obviously greater institutions and practices that, that are available to you. And But even if you even if you decide no, it is still okay to like want to take a stand in the face of anti-Semitic violence or violence against people of color or uh, violence against, you know, um, LG members of the LGBTQIA community. Like it is just feeling like, oh, I don't identify with this doesn't mean that you don't have a right, a right to, to speak up against it or even like a moral responsibility to consider it which i think like again jews are not responsible for anti-semitism but like it is as human beings i think we're now in a where we are in a position not just now to consider these things really heavily and regardless of our own religious or cultural identities phil what was the best part about um being at your niece's bat mitzvah I, I can't quite say maybe it was just a, a sense of family a sense of community but it's something that I, I I got there in Brooklyn that I don't feel back here. Well, I'm just really glad. I'm really glad that you got to experience that. And just thank you both for adding a, a couple of thoughts to this like ongoing question. My pleasure. You know, just just showing up people and uh, showing up places and speaking in a vaguely Jewish way is literally my entire professional qualification. <laughs> I feel like today I became a Beastie Boys Jew. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, thanks to the both of you. Uh, you are both wonderful, wonderful additions to the show, and I'm extremely grateful. Um, Phil, as always, thank you for being such a great producer. And Josh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For helping us cut through these thorny, thorny issues. We had some real, real pickles today. You know, from boyfriends who won't stop peeing on you to contentious cat paintings Um to who is a Jew? <laughs> you know, just we've really run the gamut of the human experience yeah, we, we today. Went, we went from um, possible talk of alcoholism, just full Talmud by the end. Yeah, yeah. nothing too big, nothing too small. Sure. Next week we'll be co- just covering like Heschel. Yeah. <laughs> right. What What does it mean to be a a, a person? And um, is it okay to shoplift a little bit? <laughs> That will be the next time that you are a guest on the show. I'm very excited about this. Uh, Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, Call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. If you think it will destroy your life to try to attain this position, even if you could be helpful to others, then it's not worth tearing your own life apart. Right. I think especially that line about I've been told I'm probably in the best position of anybody. Mm -hmm. You don't say who told you that. Mm -hmm. You don't say how qualified they were to make that assessment. And you don't say, like, were you aggressively headhunted by a council of kingmakers or was this uh, just a couple of people within your organization? Like, how how knowledgeable are these people? How involved have they been in getting progressives elected before? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.